Well, it's really great to see everybody again. It's, you know, um, Adam and Elke asked me to, to come back and, and do um, renewal of vows, a ceremony with them. And it was so precious yesterday, very God-honoring and wonderful. And as soon as I had agreed to do that, a couple of days later, Jeremy calls me and says, Hey, you want to preach that weekend? And I go, no, just because I'm coming doesn't mean I have to preach. He goes, no, I'm going to be in Dallas. I'm like, oh, okay, I guess I could do that. So it's been six months, six months since I preached. So hopefully it's like riding a bike, you don't forget. If not, I apologize right now. So um, we're going through the Bible in five years again. And so we're in Genesis. How many of you read your, your passages this week? Okay, okay, no shame. But you guys need to start doing it if you, if you haven't. You need, you need to get into the Word on a daily basis. And uh, I, did, I did it with you. I'm not even, I'm not even in this church anymore. I'm, do, I'm still doing it. I love it. This is great stuff. And so um, as I read uh, the Scriptures this week, I was reminded of a story. How many, how many of you guys have ever read The Hiding Place with Corey Ten Boom and uh, the, the family in Holland that when the, the Nazis came in and they were hiding Jews? So everybody knows a lot about Corrie Ten Boom, right? But not many people know about her sister, Betsy Ten Boom. Do you know about Betsy? Betsy at a y- very young age determined that God told her she should not lie. And when, when you're hiding Jews in your house, not lying is a problem. In fact, there was a time when they are hiding Jews in the cellar and they have a trap door underneath the table. And they put a rug over it and they put a table there. Well, one day, a bunch of soldiers busted into the house and they began looking around because they had heard rumors This is a house that keeps Jews. And the soldier came to Betsy Ten Boom and said, Are there Jews in your house? And because she had determined never to lie, she said, Yes, they're underneath the table. And the soldiers looked at the table and go, What, you take me for a fool? And they smacked her around, but they left. But she was telling the truth. God, in all his testimony, she chose not to lie, but yet he still acted in such a way in protecting the Jews that were in the house. It's it's amazing. You know, as, as I get older, I've come to the conclusion that God is less interested in what we do and more interested in how we do it. The Bible's pretty clear what we should be doing, but how we do it, I think, is more important. And we're going to look at that today, because that's completely what we read about. We read Genesis 27 through 31. So, I have a map. (laughs) And hopefully it shows up. Here it is. Here is the map. This is Genesis 27 through 31, actually 33. But what we read this week is this map. This is 
Jacob is in Beersheba right here with his, with his dad Isaac, his mother Rebecca, and his brother Esau. And during our reading this week, he traveled all the way to the Mesopotamia, to the part of the Fertile Crescent right there. Haran, this is where he's at. You know that distance? That distance is 500 miles. This is a little over 500 miles. He, he walked. That, that always astounds me. It would be going from walking from El Paso to San Antonio. If you guys are like, oh, no, no, Texas. Okay. It's if we went walk from Albuquerque to Denver, which is only 444, you'd have to go up to Fort Collins. That's the distance that he traveled. I'm pretty sure that he probably had something on the way back to walk on with camels and sheeps and goats and everything because he'd acquired some wealth. But on the way out, he sort of ran out of town. But can you imagine? I can't. So even on the best of days, you can only walk about 20, 25 miles. So this is a, it's almost a, almost a full month's journey that Jacob did. And so I'd like to dive in to a couple of passages what we read this week and look at Jacob. First of all, we're going to look at what precipitated this trip. Okay? Genesis 27, 11 through 44. That's a lot, but we're going to get into it. Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, But my brother Esau is a hairy man while I have smooth skin. What if my father touches me? I would appear to be tricking him and would bring down a curse on myself rather than a blessing. Let me set the stage here. Isaac decides to usurp God's prophecy and bless Esau with the firstborn blessing. Rebecca gets wind of it and she brings Jacob into the into it and say make some food for your dad and you get the blessing. Okay? This is where we're at. His mother said to him, "My son, let the curse fall on me. Just do what I say. Go and get them for me." So he went and got them and brought them to his mother. And she prepared some tasty food, just the way his father liked it. Then Rebekah took the best clothes of Esau, her older son, which she had in the house, and put them on her younger son, Jacob. She also covered his hands and his smooth part of his neck with goat skins. Then she handed to her son, Jacob, the tasty food and the bread she had made. He went to his father and said, my father. Yes, my son, he answered. Who is it? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you have told me. Please sit up and eat some of my game so that you may give me your blessing. Isaac said to his son, how did you find it so quickly, my son? The Lord, your God, gave me success. Then Isaac said to Jacob, come near so I can touch you, my son, to know whether you really are my son Esau or not. Jacob went close to his father Isaac, who touched him and said, The voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. He did not recognize him, for his hands were hairy like those of his brother Esau. So he proceeded to bless him. Are you really my son Esau? He asked. Jacob said, I am. And then he said, My son, bring me some of your game to eat so that I may give you my blessing. Jacob brought it to him. He ate. He brought some of the wine and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, Come here, my son, and kiss me. 
So he went to, to him and kissed him. When Isaac caught the smell of his clothes, he blessed him and said, Ah, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you heaven's dew and the earth's richness. An abundance of grain and new wine. May nations serve you and peoples bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may the sons of your mother bow down to you. May those who curse you be cursed and those who bless you be blessed. After Isaac had finished blessing him, Jacob had scarcely left his father's presence. His brother Esau came in from hunting. He too prepared some tasty food and brought it to his father. Then he said to him, My father, please sit up and eat some of my grain, my game, so that you may give me your blessing. His father Isaac asked him, Wait, who are you? I am your son, he answered, your firstborn, Esau. Isaac trembled violently and said, Who, who was it then that... The hunted game had brought it to me. I ate it just before you came, and I blessed him. Indeed, he will be blessed. When Esau heard his father's words, he burst out with a loud and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, me too, my father. But he said, Your brother came deceitfully and took your blessing. Esau said, It isn't, isn't he rightly named Jacob? This is the second time he has taken advantage of me. He took my birthright, and now he's taking my blessing. Then he asked, Haven't you received any blessing, reserved any blessing for me? Isaac answered Esau, I have made him lord over you and have made all of his relatives his servants. I have sustained him with grain and new wine. So what can I possibly do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, Do you have only one blessing, my father? Bless me too, my father. Then Esau wept loud. His father Isaac answered him, Your dwelling will be away from the earth's richness and away from the dew of heaven above. You will live by the sword and you will serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you will throw his yoke from off your neck. Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him. And he said to him, the days of mourning for my father are near. And then I will kill my brother Jacob. When Rebekah was told what her older son Esau had said, she sent for her younger son Jacob and said to him, your brother Esau is planning to avenge himself by killing you. Now then, my son, do what I say. Flee at once to my brother Laban in Haran. Stay with him for a while until your brother's fury subsides. Wow. What a mess. What a screwed up family. What a area of dysfunction. All the cast of characters operated in a worldly manner. When God set Abraham apart, he was supposed to be someone, a man of God. And Isaac, his son, was supposed to be a man of God. But toward the end of the age, Isaac, Rebekah, Esau, Jacob, all acted in a worldly manner. They chose to manipulate rather than by truth. Let's look at Isaac. Isaac chose to ignore God's edict that Jacob would be the one to receive God's blessing. And he, and he knew it. Remember when the twins were born. Rebecca sought the Lord. And in Genesis 25-23 it says, The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two people from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older 
will serve the younger. They, he knew it. Isaac knew this. Yet he still tried to circumvent God's prophecy. It's, it's Isaac's idea to bless Esau. He's the one that said, hey, go get some game. Get some food so I can bless you. Isaac's the one. And then we look at Rebecca. Rebecca chose to circumvent her husband's wishes by tricking him with Jacob being in deceitfulness. She, Isaac and Rebecca, are the ones that are doing this. Esau and Jacob, to a certain are sort of like they're in, but they didn't come up with the idea. And they're acting very, very distrustfully. Then we look at Esau. He agreed to get his father's inheritance blessing, even though he himself had despised his own birthright for lunch of porridge and had made a vow to that effect. So he, he was willing to ignore his own promise to God about it. And then there's Jacob. He was willing to be a participant in this deception as long as he wasn't caught by his father and was given a curse. He was, at first he was like, oh, I'm not sure I should do this, Mom. Because if I get caught, things aren't going to be good. Not. And Rebecca encourages Jacob because, oh, no, you won't get caught. It wasn't about whether I should do right or wrong. It's whether I should get caught or not. And that's a shame. All ignored God's prophetic utterings. All looked to manipulate to get what they wanted. All were willing to deceive to get what they wanted. In other words, the ends justified the means. And that's a problem. Significantly at this point, each person in this drama acted in man-centered wisdom and energy. Not according to divine or spiritual wisdom and energy. Esau, agreeing, agreeing to Isaac's plan to give birthright, disregarded his, his previous promise to allow God to have the birthright. All of them, Isaac, Rebecca, Jacob, and Esau, did not trust each other. Worse yet, they didn't trust God. Each one of them schemed and plotted against each other and against God. Spurgeon said this about this particular passage. He said, the whole story reflects no credit upon any of the person's concern. They all messed up. And the worst aspect of it all is that they seem to regard Isaac's blessing as something magical. Rather than Letting God's wisdom and will giving the blessing. Which is really interesting. It even comes in some way. Jacob, in the end of his life, sort of gets the blessing to all the kids in a sort of magical way rather than prophetic way. I mean, it turned out to be prophetic, but it's sort of like, let's treat it magically rather than looking to God. This is looking at the world rather than looking to God. So, Jacob hears that Esau is 
you know, resting in the, the idea that as soon as Pop dies, I'm killing that guy. Rebecca gets wind and says, hey, it's time to go. It's time to go. Go visit my brother, where we came from, way out in Padam Haram. He said, go, go. So Jacob leaves. He doesn't take much. He leaves. He's, he heads off. And he meets God on the road, probably two days into the journey. He's tired. He lays down, uses a rock, put his head. And God shows up and talks to him and reveals himself just like he did Abraham, just like he did Isaac. And says, through you, my promise of being a blessing and being a blessing to all nations is going to be through you. And I think that deeply affects Jacob. Because as we get, as we read more in the story, he becomes less like a manipulator and more like, well, I should trust God. Not completely, because he's sort of surrounded with worldly people when he gets there. One of the things I noticed is when he gets there, he gets to a well. Woman comes, immediately falls in love with her. There's something about Mesopotamian wells. I think this is the place to pick up chicks. I mean, isn't this where Isaac got Rebecca? I mean, isn't... And Jacob falls in love with Rachel. Don't go to the bars. Go to the well. I'm just saying. That's just interesting. And you look at that. And so the whole story comes. He, he works for seven years for Rachel's hand. Laban pulls a fast one. On wedding night, he gets Leah. Wait, Leah? What the heck? She's not loved. He wants Rachel. He doesn't want Leah, but he gets Leah. So he works another seven years to work off two wives. And because Leah is not loved by Jacob, God opens up her womb. She begins to pop out kids all the time. Boom, boom, boom. Four, four sons right away. And then Rachel with her manipulation, hey, Sleep with my maidservant so that I can have some kids. Just like Sarah did with Hagar years ago. That never goes well. But it did. And then Leah goes, let me take my maidservant. Four women. Guys, you should have some sympathy for Jacob. Oh my God. One's enough. My wife's not here. I can say that. One's enough. I'm just saying. And so, after all that, he he's, has kids. Then Rebecca, uh, Rachel finally has a kid. Joseph. And it's been 20 years. He says, it's time to leave. It's been 14. And then Laban, oh, no, no, stay, stay. I'll, I'll give you part of, part of the stuff. So they work out this way of dividing as Jacob is caring for all of Laban's livestock, how to divide it out. And of course, God acts. And more of the flock becomes 
Jacob's and less for Laban's. So in that story, then we get to Genesis 31. Starting in verse 1. Jacob heard that Laban's sons were saying, Jacob has taken everything our father owned and has gained all this wealth from what belonged to our father. And Jacob noticed that Laban's attitude toward him was not what it had been. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Go back to the land of your fathers and to your relatives, and I will be with you. So Jacob sent word to Rachel and Leah and to come out to the fields where his flocks were. He said to them, I see that your father's attitude toward me is not what it was before. But the God of my father has been with me. You know that I've worked for your father with all my strength. Yet your father has cheated me by changing my wages ten times. However, God has not allowed him to harm me. Now it appears that Jacob's learned a few things about God. He gives God the credit for his accumulation of wealth. So it appears Jacob is slowly acting more godly in his actions, yet he is surrounded by people who choose to go to, God's, to the world's standard rather than God's. And one of the th- key things that we can observe, especially in this passage, is the idea of envy. Envy is a worldly proposition. If you envy, you are not acting godly. Envy is a bad thing. I don't think it's ever a good thing. Ever. So let's look at the cast of characters here. Well, Leah. She was envious of her sister because her sister was the one that was loved. She was envious. And in the reading this week, we had a time when Rachel comes up to her because she has one of her son's mandrakes. And she asked for some of the mandrakes. says, you've already taken away my husband. Now you want to take the mandrakes? This woman is living bitter, bitterly envious. Even though God has blessed her with a bunch of children. And then there's Rachel. Rachel is envious of Leah. Because she's popping out all these kids. She goes to Jacob. She goes, give me kids or I'm just going to die. Jacob's like, wait, am I in the place of God? So both of these sisters are envious of each other. You always want what you don't have, right? People with straight hair want curly hair. People with curly hair is like, oh, I would do anything that's straight hair. We always want what we don't have. And that is not a godly trait. And then let's look at Laban's sons. Laban's sons were like, oh, our inheritance is getting taken away by this guy. And they attributed that Jacob is stealing the wealth from Laban. And then you have Laban himself, who over a period of years is changing the standard 
the changing the wages so that he could continue to be get the blessing of Jacob's blessing for his own wealth. When Jacob wants to leave the first time, Laban says, no, no, stay, because I know that God is, is blessing you, and I want to get the blessings too. He didn't think about, oh, maybe I should find about that, about this God and follow him. No, he's just keep, trying to keep Jacob close through manipulation and, and envy. There has envy. Here's the definition of envy. A feeling of discontented or resentful longing aroused by someone else's possessions, qualities, or circumstances. Luck. That's Here's another definition. Painful or resentful awareness of an advantage enjoyed by another with a desire to possess that same advantage. Everybody in this thing is envying everybody else and they're acting horribly and when we look at this narrative of what happened so many years ago we look at that envy number one envy distorts truth you start listening to others and not to god it distorts truth when you start envying you'll believe anything other than what the way the truth really is it poisons relationships. It causes us to not see the person for who that person is. They see it for what they have and what you don't have. It poisons relationships. It causes divisions. I mean, look at all of these patriarchs here, they all liked one son over another. And I'm sure it started with Abraham, because Abraham knew that Isaac was the promised one, but there, there was already another child, right? Ishmael. And then after Sarah died, Abraham had a bunch more. But Isaac was going to be the, well, the one of promise, so clearly Abraham was like, you're the child of promise. And so when Isaac has kids, he likes one over the other. And you think Jacob would have learned. But then when Jacob has all of these kids, he has favorites. This ends up getting Joseph thrown into a well, taken off to Egypt, because of the envy that is continually in the relationships of these family. It's all about what he has and what I don't have. So it causes divisions. It causes breakup of relationships. And you get more interested in manipulation to get your way rather than looking to God and gratefulness for what you have. You look more like the world when you envy and less like Jesus. Speaking of Jesus, let's turn to Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. This is Paul talking about Jesus. He said, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, 
who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by, being a com- by becoming obedient to the death, even death on a cross. My friends, if we learn anything from our reading this week, we want to look less like the world than more like Jesus. But you might say, well, you know, Jesus was God. He, he had an advantage over me, so he, he always acted like God, and I, I don't have that aspect of it. But let me tell you what. Let's look at that for a second. And God did not use that. Jesus did not use that advantage in how he dealt with people. One, he humbled himself to living under the laws of humanity. But if we think about all the aspects of God, God's omnipotent, God's omniscient, he is holy, he is all, okay, all of those things. Jesus did not use his power to direct people toward him. He, he couldn't. He didn't. He didn't use all of his knowledge to draw people to him. Because it wouldn't work. Let's just take an example here. Let's say that I'm the authority here. I'm the pastor. I'm the authority. Okay? I have all the power. I have all the knowledge. This is just an example. Okay, no. But because I have authority within the church, if someone brings an accusation to me, just like they accuse Jesus, I can't use my power to silence the opposition. If Trinidad says, hey, everybody, Pastor Mark is cheating on his taxes. Everybody goes, ooh. By using power, I could say, Trinidad, you shut up. That doesn't prove my innocence. Or I could tell him, you, you're out of the church. Does that prove my innocence? Actually, that makes me look more guilty, doesn't it? But if I said, here are my, here are my tax records for the last seven years. Oh, Trinidad said, well, I must have been wrong. It's through a demonstration that something's achieved, not by power, not by knowledge. So get this. Jesus did not prove his love by his power or by his knowledge. He did it by a demonstration of love. He went to the cross willingly. You you think those nails held him on the tree? He would have been there anyway because he demonstrated his love by dying for us on the cross. That's how we be more like Jesus. Through demonstration. Do we want you to have power? You'll have power through the Holy Spirit. That'll work. But you're not going to convince a lot of people that way unless they have the Holy Spirit too. 
You can't do it by getting more knowledge about the Bible, though it's important that you keep diving into the scriptures so that you know and you're not deceived. But you can't win an argument with people because people usually just think they know more than you and you know more than them and you're quoting scripture and they don't care about the scripture and you're not going to convince them. But if you do it by love, that is where we change people's lives. And we operate on God's way rather than the worldly way. And that's the rub. That's, that's where we struggle. Because we think we have an idea of how things work. When in fact sometimes God intervenes. So I've got a story. It's found in the Bible in John chapter 5. And let's look at this such a very short story there is an invalid a paralytic he's old er he's been around for a long time and every day he goes to the pool of Bethesda now there is a tradition that an angel will touch the water and the first one in gets healed He's been there for a long, stinking time. And Jesus comes and meets him. John chapter 5, starting in verse 5. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Note the answer of this man. Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. And then Jesus said, Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. At once, the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. This invalid who'd been trying his best to do what he thought what he needed to do. Jesus comes in and says, get up and walk. He walked. Man never had to even stick a toe in the pool. This is one of the lessons that are, that are hard learned for us, regardless of our age and circumstances. I can tell you I'm at fault all the time. I trust in my ability, my ingenuity, my experience Rather than trusting God. This is because I have become overly confident in my method and my strategy. Rather than God's. After all, I've seen it done that way and it's worked for others. Or I've done it that way and worked for me before. But just because it worked that way in the past does not mean that Jesus wants it done that way. Remember what I said at the beginning. I think God is more concerned Of how we do things. That is to be more like Jesus. So the next time you get a little overconfident. In how something needs to get done. Just remember this lame man. He got up. He walked without even dipping a toe in the pool. And then remembered. Jesus might want to do something different with you. That might bring. Less attention to you. And more attention to God. 
Don't look like the world. Look like Jesus. Jesus. 